Hi, this is Carol Pope. Hi, I'm Kevin Staples. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to Rainbow, Rainbow Country. Country with Mark Tara. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the persons appearing on the program. Today on Rainbow Country, Operation Soap, the Toronto bathhouse raids of 1981. Activist, historian, and author Tim McCaskill is my guest. That and more on episode 359, so stay tuned for Gay Talk Radio right here on Rainbow Country. Hi, this is Emily Saliers from Indigo Girls. Hey everyone, this is Chris Harder, porn star, burlesque performer, and the creator of Porn to Be a Star. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Well, hello and welcome to a brand new journey through Rainbow Country. As I like to call it, a little gay radio show working to give voice to the LGBT community and beyond. And as always, I am your tour guide through Rainbow Country. I'm producer and host Mark Tara. By the way, Rainbow Country originates from CIUT FM in Toronto and now proudly in syndication on 12 outlets across Canada from coast to coast to coast. The Yukon, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, the east coast of Canada in Newfoundland, Ontario, even down to Buffalo, New York, and online. Well, thanks to you tuning in, streaming, downloading, but ultimately listening. Together, we continue to build Rainbow Country into a nationally syndicated gay radio show, a number one LGBT podcast on Podomatic.com's Gay and Lesbian Chart, as well as being recognized now as Canada's number one LGBT podcast on Feedspot.com. So this is season eight of Rainbow Country, and what I plan to do is reach back into the archives to bring forward conversations that I've had with some compelling guests. So today, my 2021 interview with activist and historian Tim McCaskill, author of Queer Progress, From Homophobia to Homonationalism. He's here to talk about Operation Soap, the Toronto Bathhouse Raids of 1981. His book, Queer Progress, From Homophobia to Homonationalism, and so much more. Plus an hour or two music from LGBT artists, independent artists, voices that we've come to know and love in classic disco, classic 80s, classic house, and on today's episode I'm featuring some classic new wave, some new queer music, and more. All that lies ahead as we start Journey 359 through Rainbow Country. And when I return, activist, historian, and author Tim McCaskill talks about... Operation Soap. Hi, this is Amanda Marshall, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Tim McCaskill, hi, how are you? I am well, how are you? 
I am well. I am better now that I am speaking to you. Thank you very much for being here. To have your voice, your story be heard by the LGBT community and beyond, Tim McCaskill. So let's start here with yourself. You are, among other things, you are an author. You have two books, I believe, under your belt. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's start with Queer Progress, From Homophobia to Homonationalism. On Amazon, your book has a rating of 4.8 out of 5 stars. Some customer reviews say, How one man helped change hearts and minds. Another, a fascinating read. And the last one I'll spotlight simply says, Illuminating. Queer progress from homophobia to homonationalism. First of all, my first question, what is this book about? Talk to me about what this book is encompassing. I guess it is about a history of the gay movement focusing on Toronto from the 70s, so shortly after decriminalization to 2014, which was um, the uh, World Pride that was held in Toronto. So it seemed to be to have a kind of an arc from a point that we were all criminals to the point that we were being celebrated as a community, both in Canada and around the world. What I was trying to look at was both how the movement uh, had changed over that, over that 40 years uh, from a notion of uh, kind of gay liberation and social transformation to one of, in fact, being included in society rather than transforming society, and how society had changed at the same time from one that was relatively socially equal. If you look at kind of the the Volchansky study, you'll see that uh, in Toronto, anyway, in 1976. of people are in a kind of middle income areas. And then I think there's 19% poor or below that and uh, 15% above that. When you go to 2005, which is sort of the end of his study, which is the year that gay marriage was uh, finally adopted, about more than 50% of Toronto's population is in the below average income area. The, uh, the middle income has shrunk to 20 some percent and the rich has remained about the same. So what we see is a much more, a much more, um, how would you say polarized society. And so one of the things that I was trying to make sense of was how we shifted from a society that was socially equal, but in terms of queer people legally really unequal, like we were criminals to a society where we are legally equal, but one that is much more socially unequal that then produces all of these divisions within our community. So that was the kind of stuff that I was trying to sort out. So in, an, in a nutshell, from this goes from the 70s to, what, 2014? 2014, that's the, right. The book, Queer Progress. In a nutshell, how do you think the LGBT community has progressed? How do you see it? Well, I mean, certainly in terms of our um, position in society, it has tr- it has changed dramatically. I guess it, it twenty. I mean, I grew up in a really homophobic society, right? A society where it was illegal to have gay sex, 
um, where uh, you know the only words that would apply to us were well in my school and we in elementary school was sissy and then a little later on it became queer um, there was one really effeminate boy in my school career I grew up in a small town a village actually uh, so we went to school with the same cohort of kids from uh, elementary school right through to the end of high school. And you know, this kid was uh, gender non-conforming, I guess one would say today, and he was harassed and teased and beaten up and isolated and made fun of, and his life was hell. I mean, that was that was the kind of situation for anybody who was anywhere approaching queerness, approaching uh, not being part of gender norms. Uh, and now we live in a society where, you know, school boards uh, participate in the pride parade, people can get married, all of those kinds of things have meant that we as a group are much more integrated and included into society. But as a group, we've also become much more divided, I think. When the 1970s when I came out, if you look at those studies, if 66% of people in Toronto were middle income, that would probably mean that that was true too of the vast majority of people in the gay community. Um, so what that meant was, you know, everybody could afford to go to a bar or to a bathroom. Most people could, right? And if you were poor, you could probably still scrape together enough money to do that. And if you were rich, there was no place else to go because you, you weren't so rich you could fly off to some exotic uh, locale, right? So it produced this kind of common, we were all on a common boat. We were all kind of despised by society and you know, we all had a certain amount of, um, of dispensable income, difference between men and women. I mean, that's uh, something else we need to talk about. But more or less, we were all in the same boat. Whereas now that we're supposedly all accepted, we live in really different worlds depending on what part of the city we live in. You can see that I mean, the, the, the kerfuffle around pride uh, with Black Lives Matter in 2016, I think, made that really quite clear that you know, for you know, more middle class, probably white gay men living in the center of the city, many of them see the police as people who protect their property, right? If you're black and living in Etobicoke or Scarborough, you know, you see the police as somebody who harasses you and cards you and you know, sometimes shoots you, right? Uh, it's, and so, like, why would you invite them to our party, right? And we have a very different, because of our different, the way different worlds we live in now, people have developed very different uh, relationships to, to the state, to the government, uh, to all of those kinds of things. And that produces a much more fragmented community, I think. Homo nationalism? Mm. What is that? What does that mean? Okay, I guess it's kind of the opposite of institutional homophobia. And we talked about, we talked about the kind of world that I grew up in when gay sex was illegal. Um, I can remember when the debate was going on around decriminalization. There was a uh, kind of an edgy public affairs show called This Hour Has Seven Days. It came on late on Sunday night. And as part of the debate, they actually interviewed a homosexual, probably the first homosexual, uh, you know, knowingly uh, on any kind of CBC program. And I remember watching it, right? Uh, and this guy was backlit. 
So you couldn't see the face. You just saw a silhouette. And his voice was distorted so you wouldn't be able to recognize the voice. That was the only image the CBC could show of a gay person, right? It was like so shameful, so, you know, out of, out of the kind of possibilities of polite society. That, and when was this? You know, what year? That would be 1968. Okay. Right. And I was kind of in, in high school later, later on in high school. So homonationalism is the opposite of that. That's when the state begins to embrace you and actually begins to use you to give itself an alibi, you know, um, so now Canada, like, scolds other places that are uh, not as tolerant as Canada is on gay rights, right? And we become this kind of poster boy for how liberal and progressive Canada is. Yet Canada is still the same kind of colonial and racist society that it always was, right? That none of that has gone away. And in fact, in terms of social disparity and poverty, we've gotten a lot worse than we were in the 70s. And so gay rights becomes this this flag that Canada gets to fly to show how good it is, when in fact it isn't hasn't really changed that much for a whole lot of people, including people in our community who don't happen to be white and don't happen to be middle class. Mm. So let's talk about the 80s. Mm. Oh, the 80s. More so February 5th, 1981, Operation okay. Soap. That was the name given to the police raid that targeted four gay bathhouses in Toronto, the Barracks, Club Toronto, uh, Richmond Street Health Emporium, Roman II Health and Recreation Spa. You gotta love some of these names. Yeah, yeah. Some 300 men were arrested. Did you help to organize the very first protest march that happened at Young and Wellesley? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was there. I was involved in all the famous one and all the ones that followed that, right? That we had How did you get involved in that, in organizing that, helping to organize that? So when I, ca I came out in 1974, and I joined uh, shortly afterwards the Collective of the Body Politic, which was kind of the iconic um, gay liberation paper uh, in Canada, certainly in Toronto and Canada, and it had a certain international uh, reach as well. Um, so I'd been writing for the body politic and was um, involved in the in the collective for, I guess, at that point, seven or eight years <clears throat> up until 1981. So the story is um, I have a very spotty academic career. It took me 13 years to get through a three year general B.A. And so in 1981, I had gone back uh, in one of my periodic returns to to university to try to get some more credits to finish us this BA. And the uh, the night of February 5th, uh, 81, I had stayed home to um, cram for an economics exam the next morning. It was a economics 101 course, which I think they failed about 60% of people went into it. It was one of these um, courses that they used to screen out people from the more advanced uh, economics courses. It's all dancing grass. You know, you change the price of potatoes and what happens to the price of socks, that kind of stuff. Very mathematical. Not my strongest uh, suit. And so anyway, I was cramming for this exam, went to bed early uh, because the exam was nine o'clock the next morning. And I was just drifting off to sleep when uh, one of my roommates knocked on the door and said, Gerald Hannon from The Body Politic is on the phone, wants to talk to you. And I said, well, I'm 
I'm half asleep. Like I'll talk to him tomorrow. Right. There's no, what, what can be the rush? And he said, no, he said, it's an emergency. He's got to talk to you right now. And so I was grumpy, dragged myself out of bed, went down to the phone. And Gerald said, they're raiding all the baths. You're closest to the club, Toronto, get over there and find out what's going on and talk to people. And so I'm <laughs> not a very happy camper, but you know, it sounded like this was important. And so Pulled on some clothes. It's February. It's a cold, windy February night. And going to cross Allen Gardens over to where the club baths are at Mutual and Carlton. And I remember like turning the corner to the club baths. Um, and the place was full of cops, right? And the, the image that came to my mind was like one of those nature programs where the pride of lions has just, you know, made its big kill. And they're all sitting around looking very satisfied with themselves, right? Um so they didn't pay any attention to me at all, right? Um, paddy wagons were there, and they were letting some people uh, out on their own reconnaissance. I you know they'd given them uh, pieces of paper to uh, you know appear in court on such and such a date. And so I started trying to interview people. And I think one of the first people that came out was this this middle aged guy. Um, you know, like not, not not your fashionable downtown gay guy. Like a, he was dressed in kind of regular middle uh, kind of uh, middle aged clothes. And when he started to speak, he had this Portuguese accent. So he's like a an ordinary ordinary working class Portuguese guy. And so I said, "What what's going on in there?" And he said, "I I, I don't understand it at, at all. Right? This is a cheap place. I can spend the night. It's like." Um, much cheaper than a hotel and all of a sudden I was in my room and you know these policemen like kicked down the door and they dragged me out and now I have to appear in court and then he kind of looked at me and said like oh like who the hell are you right why am I telling you all this stuff right and I said you know I'm from the body politic the the gay paper and he said you're gay and I said yeah and he said I mean, he changed. He said, like, why are they doing this to us? We've been going to these places for years. They've got no right to do this stuff, right? And then he said, and what is this paper that they've given me? mean, I have to go to court. Is my name going to appear in the papers, right? And, like, at this point, you know, you could you could hear, like, almost tears in his voice. Like, this guy is terrified. He's probably in the closet, maybe got a family, right? And he's going to be outed in the press. Like, his life is about to be completely disrupted right you know, so i kind of said i don't know um we'll certainly try to prevent anybody's name from appearing in the paper but at this point I, who knows what's going on right because nobody really knows so i kind of continued interviewing and I mean, it's kind of a funny story i was still kind of numb i guess from being out in the cold and you know being half asleep before i got there and then they started bringing out um the guys that they weren't releasing on their own reconnaissance. You know, they didn't have enough ID or they'd been too mouthy or God knows what. Right. And these two big cops came out the door of the club and between them, there was this absolutely gorgeous young man, just like, you know, Oh God, to die for. And, um, you know, he stepped out of this hot bath into the cold night air and everybody kind of pauses. Right. And so there he is like, if this this cinematic pause caught in the streetlights between these these two cops, and all of a sudden I just found myself enraged, you know, like how how can they do this? 
<laughs> to this gorgeous young man. How can they do this to us, right? Uh, it was kind of all mixed up, right? You know, as you know, lust and politics often gets mixed up. Um, and so, you know, I stayed around another couple of hours, kind of interviewing people as they came out, getting madder and madder, and went home, couldn't sleep. And needless to say, my exam the next morning at nine o'clock was not my best effort ever. Um, and as soon as it was finished, I like. I jumped on my bicycle because I'm a you know avid bicycle rider, even though it's February, and raced down to the body politic office where a meeting was being held to try to figure out like what the hell we were supposed to do. Um, by this time, we'd realized that there were like nearly 300 people arrested, and you know all the stuff was coming out, and they'd also you know done enormous amount of damage to the premises. Like they hadn't like knocked on people's doors they'd kick people's doors down they didn't ask people or offered them their keys to their locker and police had brought crowbars and they pried open the lockers instead they threw furniture in the pool at the at richmond street and it was the only one that actually had a pool um and it ruined the furniture and fucked up the pool and you know the, the whole thing and it just trashed the places and you know homophobic um screaming at people and you know the whole the whole thing right so people were really angry so i raced down to this meeting uh and it's just coming to a close um and uh i asked her like what's what what are we going to do and um chris birchall who was this feisty young dyke on the body politic collective said we're doing a demonstration tonight at midnight at young and wellesley and i said you've got to go to your mind <laughs> Right, guys. This is the days before. Uh, there's like, there's no internet. There's no email. There's no social media. I mean, if you want to organize a demonstration, you've got to print posters and put them up and talk to people and phone them. It takes like weeks to get people to come out to anything. Right, and so the idea of trying to organize a demonstration that very night seemed to be crazy. A, B. This is night on a Friday night on Young Street. Young Street on a Friday night is, you know, is dangerous territory. That's where all the straight bars are. That's where the boys that come to Queer Bash all are. You try to avoid Young Street uh, as much as you possibly can. And to, like, come out there at midnight um, and do a demonstration, I mean, it just seemed, it, was, it seemed to me to be completely crazy. And Chris said to me, look, we're... Um, it's in all the newspapers. It's the front page news, front page of the Toronto Star, the the raid. Um, uh, everybody knows about it because they've arrested so many people. Everybody's already talked to all their friends. We've got posters being made right now to tell people where and when to come. Um, and we're going to be sending people around to all the bars on the Friday night, and the bars are going to be full um, to tell people what's going on. And so, yes, we're having this this tonight. And by the way, you're part of the marshalling team. You've got you've to organize. You've got to organize things and keep people you know, safe and together and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, my God. Um, and I remember walking over thinking, uh, I wonder if we're going to get killed tonight, you know, because if, you know, there are only 30 or 40 people. And, you know, the, if the police don't get us, the queer bashers will. Uh, and so I was really kind of, you know, I'd do my duty, but this seemed to me to be a really crazy thing to do and got, got to, uh, young Wellesley about 1130 and there were already 30 or 40 people there at this point, sound system hadn't arrived. Of course, all those screw ups were bound to happen. Um, but I 
pulled together the marshalling team. We figured out what we were going to do. We didn't know what we were going to do with this demonstration, by the way. Uh, you know, we knew we were gathering. And some people thought we should march down to 52 Division, which is where the raids had been organized out of. Fuck you, 52. Fuck you, 52, down, <laughs> down at Dundas, uh, just uh, mm. west of university, east, west of university. Others thought maybe we should go to police headquarters, which in those days was much closer. It was up on Jarvis Street and would have been much safer, too, because we'd be marching north from Wellesley um, and then along Bloor and then to Jarvis, which is sort of away from straight world, uh, straight world, young street. Um, but anyway, um, by you know quarter to 12, all of a sudden there was like more and more people arriving and we had people going out to all the bars saying like out of the bars into the streets and people were, you know, who normally just ignored us, um, ignored the activists were all really pissed off and all started coming out. And so by midnight, suddenly this crowd on the street was so big that it spilled off the sidewalks. And the next thing we knew, we were blocking Young Street. Now, that doesn't signify a whole lot for people today, I suppose. But in those days, Young Street, you know, longest street in the world, Canada's most famous street, all of this stuff. Um, the police never yet, never let Young Street close. That was kind of like the rule book. You couldn't get a parade permit for Young Street. The only thing that was ever allowed to close down Young Street was the Santa Claus Parade once a year. And suddenly we were blocking this iconic street. And, you know, there were a few cops around because they hadn't expected that we would be able to organize anything on such short notice either. Certainly nothing of this size. So they hadn't sent anybody. And then the crowd sort of took on a life of its own. So there were speeches and things, and we had to figure out what in the world we were going to do with them? Because these people are 3,000 people really angry. Fuck you, 52, no more shit. Everybody blowing their, their whistles and, uh, uh, you know, the street blocked. Um, so we were trying to figure out whether we should go north or south. And then the crowd kind of decided on its own, you know, fuck you, 52 was the slogan that carried the day. And suddenly people started marching south. And we took over Young Street and marched all the way south, marched, you know, uh, quickly, um, there were people spilling out of the or guys spilling out of the straight bars, but we were such a big and angry crowd. Uh, nobody really wanted to mess with us. There was one incident sort of halfway down young where some guys started, uh, you know, shouting homophobic shit and a group of the demonstrators kind of cornered him in a doorway and, you know, it looked like they were going to kill him. Uh, and then the police suddenly appeared and they got cornered in the doorway too, protecting the straight guy. Luckily we had a marshalling team that was uh, strong enough that we were able to like move people along and get them out of, get them out of there. At one point, the cops, the cops put a car across young street to try to block it. I mean, smart and people just flowed over the car. Right. Um, and was this the March that also had some undercover cops in it? No, that's the next one. That's the one that happened two weeks later. Uh, okay. this, this one, I mean, the, the cops didn't know. This would have been on the, the 6th. This was on the 6th. This is uh, the day Friday after. The, yeah, Friday the 6th. The other one is two weeks later. And then, you know, we, we were better organized, but also the cops were better organized. And so uh, that pushed it to a completely different level. Anyway, we got to Dundas, um, turned... Uh, Turned right to go along Dundas. Streetcar was coming along. Streetcars figure, oh, they got the, we've got the right of way, right? And so just tried ringing its bell, moving forward, and people started pounding on the streetcar until one of the windows broke. And then the streetcar um, 
the street car driver realized probably it was better to stop and stopped and let the crowd sort of flow on past. There were a group of young queer bashers uh, who decided they were going to defend the police uh, and put a, a, a line of, of guys uh, along, across Dundas at, uh, at university, you know, striking karate poses and looking really good, <laughs> right? And, but like 3,000 people coming at you at a clip, right? These guys kind of took one look at it and then <laughs> scattered, right? <laughs> and then we were at 52 Division and the cops had set up a, a line of, of cops to try to protect this, the, um, the, the police station because, I mean, it looked like we were going to burn it down or something. And so there was this incredible standoff with um, people right nose to nose with the cops screaming at them and the cops kind of like looking scared shitless, but also like not knowing what to do. And remember, we as the marshals, this is all unplanned, right? We don't, we didn't, hadn't expected to be there. We didn't know what to do either. Uh, and it looked like it would be, I mean, something was going to happen. And so at a certain point, somebody's going to throw a punch and all hell was going to break loose. And then luckily somebody said Queens Park. Some people started shouting Queens Park because a raid this size, I mean, there were like hundreds of officers um, uh, involved in it. I mean, it's not something that was going to be planned at one small police station, right? I mean, it had to have approval from somewhere higher up. And it was a conservative government in the province at that time. Uh, and an election was in the wings. And so it's, it really smells like this was a, uh, um, a gambit by the conservative government to show that it was strong on law and order and would put the queers in their place, that kind of stuff, uh, for the, you know, to perform for their, for their, uh, for the election. Anyway, so the crowd turned and started going up university. We're like probably one, maybe one thirty, maybe two in the morning. Right. Uh, and people started moving faster and faster up, um, university. Now, in a demonstration like that, the most dangerous place for demonstrators is at the back of the demonstration, because that's when that's where people um, kind of lag behind and, you know, your back is to what's behind you. At the front, like, nothing's going to stop you. But at the back, that's where you need your marshalling team. So I pulled the marshals around to the to the back to defend the back of the uh, of the the demonstration and by this point the queer bashers from before had kind of gathered and they were kind of following us and shouting stuff and so we needed to keep a distance between them and, and the crowd because we didn't want anybody to get hurt by the time i got to um queen's park i could see at the front because i was at the very back the front people were throwing themselves against those big wooden doors at queen's park um, and there was you know, somehow or other a TV camera had arrived. And so this was all, once again, very cinematically lit, right? So you could see the, the bright lights and people throwing themselves. You could see the doors beginning to kind of uh, uh, vibrate. And I thought, my God, now we're going to burn down Queen's Park, right? But at this point, um, cops arrived, like a whole bevy of cops arrived with truncheons and they beat people back down off the steps of, of Queen's Park, right? So then there was another kind of standoff there. So by this point, though, we're getting, it's getting late, right? And it's cold. And so you can see the energy beginning to dissipate. So we spent probably another hour trying to get people in small groups back to Church Street or back to where they could catch a bus away because, once again, if a demonstration breaks up, and the police are around and they're really pissed or the queer bashers are around, that's when people 
are going to get it hacked. That's when they're going to be right. hurt. And so, you know, I think I didn't get home that night till like four or five in the morning by the time mm-hmm. we managed to get most people away safely. How many, altogether, how many marches, protest marches were there because of that oh, during that time? Okay, so there was that one, then there was the one two weeks later. Uh, different different elements came together. There was another raid in, in Edmonton, so there was one on that. Um, there was probably five or six, the last of the major ones being in June of that year, and that's the one where it turned into a real riot. We got attacked by the police. You know, I got I got my head bashed in. Um, people got hit by cars. Uh, you know, I, I got taken to emergency at Wellesley, and the place was full of people with cuts and bruises and broken bones from from that uh, from that altercation with the police. So it was, you know, a, a very hot spring and early summer. We'll return right after this. Hi, I'm Paul Poirier, Canadian champion in ice dance and three-time Olympian, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Terra. Phone rings. I got a message from the mayor. He's going to call me back the next day. I get the call, and he said, if you'd accept, uh, would you, we'd like to honor you with the key to the city. It was an event um, later that year in May. Just a key, right? Like, key to what? A decent job, uh, a good singing career. Uh, it's really a metaphor, but it's history. So a reporter wants to talk to me and says, uh, you know, well, so it's a key, right? Like, what's the big deal? I said, well, not everybody gets the key. So I looked it up, and I guess it is kind of a big deal. The date, May 17th, 2018, when trans activist Susan Gapka made history by becoming the first trans woman to be presented with the key to the city of Toronto. By the way, past recipients include Rush and the Raptors. During all this time, you are part of the body politic. You were just saying, you know, now it's, it's... an iconic gay liberation journal back then it was. And you were part of that from what, 74 to 86, I believe? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. First of all, what led you to become part of the body politic, this iconic gay newspaper? Um, so when I came out in 74, um, you know, it's, it, it, I mean, it was like a, a huge step for me growing up in this small town. Like I, 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 I went to a, a gay pride march in 1974, which I read about in the Body Politic, which I'd been buying on the sly. I'd been I'd been living in South America for a couple of years, so I'd come back to Canada, and I figured, look, I've got to, I've either got to jump off a bridge and come out, or, or come out, right? <laughs> I can't go on like this, right? Um, and so I went to that pride and somebody picked me up and took me home and had sex with me and gave me a bunch of gay liberation books and told me to come back for more when, uh, when I finished reading. And so I read very quickly. Um, at that point, there weren't very many organizations in Toronto. So there was the Body Politic with one. There's the Gay Alliance Towards Equality, which had just formed, which is more of a, a civil rights organization. And there was CHAT, the Community Homophile Association, 
which ran a kind of a, you know, had a hotline and did education work and counseling. And it was like a much more conservative organization, um, kind of that old homophile uh, uh, way of doing things, old homophile paradigm. And so I had, um, I had written for Guerrilla newspaper back in the seventies before I went to South America. Guerrilla was the um, kind of the counterculture lefty magazine in Toronto. Um, and so I knew a little bit about journalism. So when I came out and wanted to like contribute, the body politics seemed to be the place to go, you know, cause then I could use the kind of skills that I had developed. I could, you know, I could write, I could edit and do that kind of thing. And also they were kind of, it was kind of the intellectual focus of the community. I mean, these guys were, I mean, I found them like intimidating and smart and, um, you know, they knew all this stuff that I didn't know cause they'd been out for like two or three years, my Lord. Right. They were like elders. Right. Uh, and it became this, university for me, university in gay liberation, I guess, so that I could contribute, but also learn. And how many people were part of the body politic? That changes over the years. We're probably about mostly 10, maybe 10 or 15 people on the collective, which was the center. But then there were groups of, then there were volunteers that also contributed. So the the collective were the, were the ones that set the editorial direction, like actually pulled things together, made sure that the layout was done and there were no spelling errors and all of that kind of stuff, did that kind of real grunt work. And then there were other groups that would maybe help with classified ads or help with distribution or, you know, do a a particular kind of task on a regular basis, but didn't have the responsibility for uh, directing the whole paper. And it was a big newspaper. It it was folded in in half or something. So it looked like, you know, kind of like a, a smaller magazine, but it opened up. Yeah, yeah. It unfolded. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it had like 30 or 40 pages you know, mm-hmm. at, at its height. And we had about, we sold about a third of our copies in Toronto. A third, another third was the rest of Canada and a third was international. So we were kind of one of the leading gay um, media outlets in the world at that time. Okay, so... July, 1977, Emmanuel Jack, a 12-year-old boy who's a shoeshine boy. 14, I think, but anyway. <laughs> he, was, he was murdered by a group of men. Yeah. This was July, 1977. That's right. yeah. December, 1977, the body politic runs an, an article called Men Loving Boys Loving Men. And I guess this right. sort of, you know, didn't sit well with the, the police. <laughs> And I don't know if this is when raids started happening on the body politic when it comes to the police or if it was happening beforehand or if if this triggered it. But you guys were raided and arrested. And in, what was it, like 82, you guys were eventually acquitted? So 82 was the second raid. So we we were all arrested again that time. And then 83, we were finally all acquitted. Those days must have been heady days for you. <laughs> yeah. What what were, what was it like to be part of that environment? Did you feel safe? Did you feel you always had to look over your shoulder? I, no, one one didn't feel. I mean, one never felt safe, right? Um, as a gay man in Toronto, like one of the taking taking us back even earlier, one of the first pieces of lore that I learned was the Cherry Beach Express. 
And that was when you, if you're coming out of a bar or someplace late at night, um, you needed to be very careful because if the police saw you and figured you were a gay man, what they would do would be to pick you up and take you down to Cherry Beach, which was, you know, in those days, there was no public transit or anything there in the middle of the night, sort of the middle of nowhere, and they would beat you up and leave you there. Right. So, you know, you always had to have your wits about you as a gay man in those days. Right. You <laughs> you never you never felt safe. So but back to 77, um, I wasn't actually here for the discussion on uh, men loving boys, loving men, which was Gerald Hennon's article. I'd been in Africa and came back in November 77, uh, just after the uh, the article had been published. And sort of retook up my 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 duties on the on the collective. It was quiet at first. The article wasn't. It was probably a ill 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 thought out, but an attempt at responding to some of the kinds of homophobia that had been produced by the Jacks murder. Um, the I mean the way that the homophobia was organized was that uh, homosexuals uh, were pedophiles who killed children, right? And therefore, uh, you know, why have, we, why have we decriminalized them? They should all be in jail. There should be a death penalty for homosexuality, all of this kind of stuff. And so the body politic, which was bold, uh, said, look, we've got to dismantle some of that quote unquote logic. Um, the paper had always taken a stand to say that uh, children had uh, the right to sexuality. Um, and so Gerald wrote this article with a bunch of men who had sex with much younger uh, guys, uh, I guess you would call children, to try to show that uh, child adult relationships were not necessarily murderous or any of these kinds of things and trying to humanize it. Right now that probably given the really, um, feverish atmosphere of the time was not the best strategy but uh anyway it um the article was published like three weeks went by and there was no response at all and then uh, the toronto sun somehow got wind of it and started freaking out and then on the night of the 30th i think it was um the raid the first raid happened and i was actually in the office um at the body politic at the body politic mm -hmm. uh working late because I'd been assigned my new, my new job after I came back was to do international news, which meant that I had to read all of the, all of the lesbian and gay newspapers from around the world every month, and then produce these kinds of news synopsis of what was happening in different parts of the world. So I was, I was at the back of the office kind of reading this stack of papers and um, Ed Jackson was at the front and all of a sudden in through the, the elevator doors comes this gang of cops and said, uh, we've got a search warrant. And then they started tearing everything apart. And uh, we didn't really know what to do because they didn't say we could go. I mean, we, we couldn't go because we had to be there to kind of witness what was going on and make sure they didn't really trash the place. We did manage to get a phone call uh, to the, two phone calls. One was to the rest of the collective, which had happened to be at a party on Toronto Island at the time because Jonathan Katz was in town. He'd just published uh, that first major volume of queer history in the States. And so he was, he was there and they were sort of 
at this meeting with him and we phoned them to say, don't come back to the office because the police are here and we don't know whether we're all going to be arrested or not. Right. The two of us who were here. Um, and then we phoned, managed to phone the lawyer uh, and the lawyer tried to negotiate with the police and saying, tell us what you want. And, you know, they'll give you whatever files and things you want. And the police said, no, no, we got a search warrant. And they ended up taking, I think it was 12 packing boxes away. All of our files, files or subscription lists, you know, all sorts of stuff, right? It was basically an attempt to close down the operation. And so uh, stayed there. And then they finally, they finally left taking all of their stuff, leaving us with this ransacked office and um, not quite knowing what to do next. Do you think that the fallout from what happened in 77 in part played into what happened in 81 and the bathhouse raids? Um, No, I think that that's probably the wrong way of looking at it. Remember, decriminalization happened in 69, and the police were not happy about that. They didn't like that at all. The police actually went to Parliament and testified saying, you know, we can't do this. It'll be like allowing criminals to engage in criminal activity and da 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 So the police had never, ever liked the fact that there was a growing gay community in Toronto, right? Never. Um, and so when the body politic, you know, did this kind of uh, provocative thing around um, intergenerational sex, I mean, that was an excuse. And that wasn't the first time the police had actually come around. They'd never actually arrested people before, but there'd been other articles um, earlier on that they'd taken objection to. One, we had to recall a whole um, a whole issue of the paper because they said that they were going to charge us. And, you know, at that point, the paper was still relatively young and didn't feel it could withstand that. Um, another point, they just kind of, uh, you know, made us take a copy out of the front window. At that point, we had a, a little office on um, on uh, Carlton on Carlton Street, uh, which had a, you know, a front window that we could display things in. Um, so, no, what what had t- what touched off the eighty one raids was the nineteen eighty election, municipal election. Uh, John Sewell, who'd been the mayor of Toronto, had actually spoken out in defense of the body politic, um, saying that the police should not be trying to close down community media like this, right? Uh, There are other ways of of dealing with that. And George Hislop, who had been one uh, one of the major people around chat, that kind of more conservative um, homophile association, had uh, run for city council. And uh, they both lost, right? People had thought that Hislop would be a shoe-in because he was running in kind of the gay, we call it the gay ghetto in those days, the gay village area. But he lost and Sewell lost as well. And so the police felt that they no longer, that we no longer had any kind of political cover, right? Now was their, now was their, your time to strike. Now is the time to strike, to settle scores, <laughs> to like close down this kind of, mm. to close down, close down these baths, right? Cause, and it wasn't just the baths they were after. I mean, they also were, were regularly going into the bars and finding liquor license um, infractions and, you know, fines and all of that kind of stuff. So they were attempting to close down the whole commercial scene that they saw as a unfortunate development that had come from this bad decision around decriminalization in 69. Okay, 1996, Hmm. you received the 
City of Toronto Award of Merit for your human rights work. Yeah. Did that award, did that surprise you? Was I surprised? Well, I mean, there was a, there was politics behind that as well. Uh, it was Kyle Ray, who was city councillor, who had, like, was a longtime uh, gay activist who actually uh, negotiated that. I remember he phoned me up at work and said, um, I'm thinking, uh, what would you think if I nominated you for this city council thing? And I said, well, sure, I guess, if you think it's useful, right? Um, why not? So this is the, this was the, the time that the Harris government was in power, a very conservative government. It had amalgamated uh, or was in the process of amalgamating the city, so destroying the old city of Toronto because the city of Toronto was seen as being too progressive. Um, uh, you know, grief was was quite homophobic, uh, on, on the other hand. Um, and so Kyle was trying to set up the city to kind of challenge that provincial government and uh, to have the city take a stand against uh, the homophobia of that government. And so giving an award to a longtime gay activist like myself was therefore politically expedient, I guess, right? Um, and and useful because it, it sort of put the city on record as recognizing the gay community and the struggles around uh, gay rights and the gay community as kind of legitimate struggles that were supported by the city, just as the city was being uh, dismantled and amalgamated into the suburbs by the by the government. So I mean, and it was coming. Um, it's you know it was it was kind of it was interesting. It was fun. I remember my little talk I had like a minute's talk or something to give and I said it was kind of interesting that to have this kind of recognition because when I started this kind of activism the only kind of recognition we got was the police kicking down our doors right and so this was kind of a nice a nice change right and um, you know I hope that it uh, does help strengthen the role of the community in the city so so I didn't feel like particularly validated or anything I mean I don't I, I don't look to the state, um, you know, to to validate me. In fact, they were the people who we'd been like struggling against for all these years to, to get recognition. So it was nice to see that actually happen, um, and it was nice to see it being able to happen in a point when it could be politically useful in terms of uh, snubbing our nose at a provincial government that was not at all on our side. Mm. How do you think? the LGBT community has progressed? Because you helped to shape this community. Well... You, personally. Me, personally. (laughs) Those hands and those feet. Yeah. They worked. Well, yes. But it... I mean, it's a... I mean, I think that's why I called the group, the the book Queer Progress, if you want to do the full circle here. Um, Because there certainly was progress right we are a very different community our relation to society is very different than it was in the 70s when we were uh when we were um absolutely abject and abhorrent to to most people right but we're also as i said before a much more divided community that you know we can in a certain way that old slogan we are everywhere means that we can reflect a demographics of a society as a whole. And so we now live in this society, which is much more polarized. 
between rich and poor, um, grew much greater disparity um, on a whole lot of lines. Uh, those class differences are entangled with racial differences, all of those kinds of things. And so on the one hand, I'm appreciative of that progress that we've made. On the other hand, it's been kind of an odd progress because in many ways I fear that it has left us, I mean, we're not as strong as we were in spite of, despite being much bigger and more visible, right? If, if. I mean, Have we lost a sense of community? Well, I think that we're, we're just, we're much more, we're much different now. I mean, the people that make up the community are, are very different. I had this thought experiment, okay? So they raided the baths in 81 and everybody came out into the streets because we were connected. What would happen if they, government decided to close down Grinder and Scruff tomorrow. Because that's how people connect nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. Gay men anyway, through the through mm-hmm. those apps and the other ones mm-hmm. too. What would happen? Would people come out and progr- and, and, and protest? They I mean, probably I, wouldn't know where to go. I, I would would we know where to go? I mean I don't know. I mean so are we are we vulnerable to attacks in a way that we weren't? Uh, we were we were always vulnerable, but are we are we as capable of responding now in a way that we were capable in the in the eighties? I'm not sure. I mean, I put out that question not because I know the answer. I really don't. Maybe I, mean, I was surprised by I was surprised by the response in 1981 as well, right? And so maybe I would be surprised again. But on the other hand, something tells me that that you know it might not it might not work the same way these days. Mm provocative thought tim mccaskill provocative thought that's my job who who knows who knows i have to say thank you so much for your time thank you for being on the show and i personally want to say thank you for everything that you have done because we are standing literally on your shoulders because you and your and your and the people that you worked with and uh, that did all the organizing you guys changed the LGBT community in Toronto and I would say across Canada and even beyond. So thank you for that. Thank you for everything that you've done. Well, thank, thank you. Um, you know, I can't say that it was, it was always fun, but a lot of it was fun and a lot of it was sex and, you know, I couldn't <laughs> think of a better way of, uh, life, right? Oh my God. Thanks again for your time. Okay, my pleasure. Tim McCaskill's book, Queer Progress from Homophobia to Homo Nationalism, is available wherever you get your favorite books. And on Amazon.ca, it has a rating of 4.8. 4.8 out of 5 stars. Magnus Hirschfeld made the modern homosexual. He co-founded the world's first gay rights group, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, in Berlin in 1897. But what is far more important is that he and his colleagues came up with an enormously influential concept of what same-sex desire was, what it meant, and how it fit into the wider world. If you think homosexuality is an inborn quality that cannot be changed and has a biological root, but is not an illness, and if you think gay people are a sexual minority who are born that way and who deserve legal protections just as racial minorities do, you owe those ideas to Hirschfeld and a handful of others.
He was among the first to articulate that conceptual model of what it means to be gay in print in 1896. We just heard professor, author, and historian of queer and trans politics, Lori Marhofer, reading from Racism and the Making of Gay Rights, a sexologist, his student, and the Empire of Queer Love, their powerful new gay history book about the man who made the modern homosexual, a German physician and sexologist who died at the age of 67 in 1935, Magnus Hirschfeld. Bill 7. To ban discrimination in employment, government services, and housing, based on a person's sexual orientation, was up for a vote at Queen's Park. Most NDP and Liberal MPPs supported the bill, but without some progressive conservative legislators' backing, a divisive split could rack the province. Four PCs decided to break party ranks to vote with their conscience and support Bill 7. Cabinet Minister and MPP Dennis Timbrell did it to show solidarity for his beloved brother, the well-known drag queen Rusty Ryan. And for me, a gay politician who was not yet out, I had to take a stand. We were known as the Gang of Four. I'm former Cabinet Minister and MPP Phil Gillies. The date, December 2nd, 1986, when LGBT rights came to Ontario. And just like that, this little gay journey through Rainbow Country has come to an end. For the full two-hour episode, simply head over to marktara.com, where everything is connected and hit the archives banner. To keep up to date with the show, check out the socials at Mark Tara. The podcast is available on all major platforms, including audible.com and iHeartRadio. Finally, I want to take this time to thank you for taking your time to be with me. Remember, despite all the craziness in the world these days, know this, that we are living in days of making dreams come true, so believe in yourself. And the world will believe in you. Hi, everybody. This is Gino Vanelli. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara.